1: If you deep down believe you are right, that should not make you arrogant. That should actually simply give you a secure base, to use that wonderful phrase from social psychologist John Bowlby, for some serious conversations where you do not feel threatened, but rather be able to have a conversation
2: about something deep, holding your own, but learning from others. This recognition of your ability to be unjust yourself is crucial in a development of a real appreciation for what justice is and why we should value it. And so I think that's the main thing that I take away from the
3: the character of Jesus. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians talking. This week we conclude our two-part discussion on the new book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Ruth Jackson hosts this week's discussion delving deeper into the book and its surrounding issues with its co-editor Alistair McGrath and atheist podcaster Alex O'Connor. If you missed part 1 with Vince Vitale hosting, the link is with today's show. Before jumping in, a reminder that from today you can gain early access to watch the second instalment of our special Big Conversation about Artificial Intelligence with Professors Nigel Crook and Anil Seth and you could even win a copy of Nigel's book, Rise of the Moral Machine, in our September Prize book giveaway, when you register at thebigconversation.show. More details coming up at the end of the programme. And now, over to Ruth Jackson, as she hosts the concluding part of our discussion about Coming to Faith Through Dawkins.
4: Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. And today we're continuing our discussion about new atheism following the publication of the book... Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, 12 Essays on the Pathway from New Atheism to Christianity. And I'm delighted to be joined today by one of the editors of this book, the Reverend Professor Alistair McGrath, the Emeritus Andrios Idrios Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford University. I did have to practice how to say all of that. Um, Alistair has previously debated many of the New Atheists, including, of course, the protagonist of this book, Richard Dawkins. He's also obviously engaged with his ideas in numerous books including Dawkins Guards and the Dawkins Solution. I'm also thrilled to welcome Alex O'Connor, a prolific and popular YouTube atheist and host of the Within Reason podcast, who Richard Dawkins apparently once described as unusually penetrating. Thank you both so much for joining me today, particularly because it's probably approximately a thousand degrees Celsius in England at the moment. I'm aware that is the most British thing we can be doing, talking about the weather at the start of the podcast. Um, But what I'd love to do before we dive into this really important topic is just to quickly acknowledge that actually the date that we're recording this show is the 11th of September, 22 years to the day since those catastrophic events, which in many ways provided a catalyst for the New Atheist movement that we're talking about today. And Alistair, in your introduction to the Coming to Faith through Dawkins book, you say the tragic events of 9-11 turned out to be the intellectual and moral launchpad for what is now generally known as the New Atheism, with Dawkins as its central figure. Would you mind just very quickly saying why you think some of these events sort of kick-started this huge movement?
1: Well, there's a big debate about this, but the the way I see it is that um, um, Dawkins have been saying things like, religion is evil, or it's violent, for many, many years. I mean, it goes back a long way. And then something happened, which, if you like, crystallized the perception. This isn't just rhetoric, this is reality, that actually something has happened, which in effect means that what Dawkins is saying needs to be taken incredibly seriously. So I think... uh, if you like, this was a pivotal event, which in effect meant that ideas that might have been seen as slightly marginal sometime somehow really became center stage. I think that that's one of the reasons why I think this event is seen as so important. And also to give the obvious second point, I mean, uh, if you look at, um, for example, Dawkins' own writings, it makes it very clear that actually this event made him write The God Delusion. So I think we need to say that actually, both in terms of the participants in this debate, Dawkins, um, Harris, for example, but also in terms of the public perception of this debate, 9-11 did play a very significant role.
4: Now, Alex, I'm aware that you were very young on the 11th of September 2001, but have these tragic events shaped the way that you personally view religion at all?
2: Well, like you say, uh, I don't remember these events. I would have been, I think, one or two years old at the time. And so just about within my my lifetime. Uh, But I live in a world where this is taken as a historical fact. This is something that I always know as having had happen. I struggle to comprehend what it must be like to turn on the television and see this happening live uh, right in front of you. But I can imagine that it would inspire a lot of questions as to what possible kind of thinking could motivate this kind of behavior and this kind of self-sacrifice. And indeed, this kind of bravery. Bill Maher, I believe, once had a show canceled, or at least it contributed to the cancellation of Politically Incorrect, uh, when he said that the hijackers who flew the planes into the World Trade Center were brave, which, of course, they were, uh, but bravery can go in the wrong direction sometimes. Something extraordinary must be motivating them. Now, of course, th- there's no surprise that this would put the question of religion on everybody's lips, but I think it's done just as much to uh, to engender debate about foreign policy and about uh, American interventionism and, and many other more political ideas. Um, but of course, religion is sometimes political. And I think particularly in the case with Islam, it, it it is politicized and a more political religion in many ways. And so it kind of makes sense to me. And I mean, Sam Harris also quite, uh, I think, quite obviously is motivated by this particular event in the writing of his book or this particular kind of behavior. And I think that the usual line on this is, You have to decide, Uh, it's sometimes attributed to Dostoevsky, but I don't think he ever actually wrote the words, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. Oftentimes in the moral argument for the existence of God, atheists are faced with this conundrum. If there is no God, then can't you just do anything you want? And the new atheist retort uh, typically has been, it's the other way around. If God is real, then anything is permitted, because once you have divine authority, there is simply no, uh, there's no appeal. There's no, there's no other authority or other judiciary to which you can appeal uh, that authority. And so if that authority tells you to commit some kind of horrible atrocity, there's nothing you can do to stop somebody who believes that. This is something that I think is unique to religious thinking, perhaps. But the mistake that's made, I think, is to think that this is universally a facet of religious thinking. Even if it is unique, that doesn't mean that it's universal.
4: Okay, well, perhaps this is something we could talk about a little bit later, but just very, very briefly, because I'm obviously very keen to focus on some of the stories and the arguments in coming to Faith 3 Dawkins. But I would just like to briefly return to something that you discussed in the previous episode with Ben Vitale. Alex, you asked Alistair a question about the moral permissibility of um, slavery. I think it was Leviticus 25. And Alistair, you very kindly said that you would look into that for him. So would you mind just taking a couple of minutes just to kind of honour the fact that you said that you would do that in your response, Alistair?
1: Well, of course, I'm delighted to. I mean, Alex raised a very good question, which is, um, in dealing with the question of slavery, which Richard Dawkins raised in The God Illusion, um, we, there's a reference there to Leviticus 25. I pointed out that uh, Leviticus 25 seemed to indicate that slavery was something that would be kind of deemed impermissible under certain circumstances. Alex rightly came back and said that the passage seemed to him to be more complex, and, and it is. And so, if I were to rewrite that part, section of this book uh, today, what I'd want to do is to disentangle the two different notions of slavery in the first two parts in, in the two parts of this text, and try and correlate these with wider debates. And certainly, Alex is right to say that uh, I kind of glossed over that one, and I think that, that is very good to be reminded of that.
4: Brilliant, thank you, Alistair. Well, it's such a huge issue, and perhaps at some point we could create a whole show about slavery and some of the difficult passages in the Old Testament. But for now, we want to get on to discussing new atheism. And I just want to start with a quote from Peter Byram, one of the contributors to the book. And he, in some ways, I think what he says sort of sums up a lot of the stories in this book. He says, he wouldn't like me saying this, but Dawkins put me on the road to Christian faith. He shook me out of my apathy and insisted that I follow the evidence where it led, The only twist was that the evidence took me where he and I initially didn't want it to go. And it transpired that his atheism was not as airtight as he had claimed. Now, Alistair, we don't have loads of time, but would you very briefly summarize uh, the case against Christianity, perhaps some of the objections against Christianity from a new atheist perspective? And then, Alex, I would love to hear which of these arguments you find particularly compelling.
1: Well, I think there are a range of arguments. Um, let's try and tease out some of them. Number one is that Christianity is evidentially, evidentially deficient, or more than that. Uh, the, the, the kind of standard line is that religious people just believe anything they like or run away from the evidence, and uh, that faith is blind, uh, a phrase I think that needs very close interrogation. That's certainly one area, that faith is unevidenced, or faith is characteristic of religious people. Ordinary people don't have this pernicious t- trend. They believe only what can be shown to be right. So there's this whole area of um, what evidence points to, and there is this argument which is very significant for many people who contributed to this book that that religion is simply evidentially deficient. That's one point. The next point is that um, evidence uh, that perhaps because the evidence is not that good, that religious people are inclined to violence. Now Dawkins points seems to suggest it goes something like this, that um, because religious people realize that their ideas are evidentially deficient, they're prone to violence to kind of way gain their acceptability and so on. But certainly there's this idea that religion has a link with violence. Now that is a a very significant argument. I I would want to say it's not a good argument. um, And we need to look at that in more detail. That certainly is something that I think is really significant. Then there are also some subsidiary arguments which um, need to be looked at. For example, one of them is the persistent argument that science and religion are incompatible, and therefore if you are a scientist, you have to make a choice, and in effect it's going to be atheism. And that's quite significant because some of the contributors to this volume are actually quite prominent scientists. That's that's quite significant. So obviously there are many more sub-themes that we could begin to um, look at, but those strike me as being three of the big talking points. Um, uh, None of them are conclusive. They're all things that are up for discussion. I think one of the good things about this volume is a kind of way reopens that discussion and says, we need to talk about this a bit more.
4: Well, Alex, I want to hear if you've got any outside of those objections, but are there any that Alistair's just touched on or perhaps that you've read yourself within New Atheist Literature that were particularly compelling to you? As you say, you sort of grew up in the wake of 9-11, New Atheism. It was already sort of, I guess, an established thing when you were growing up.
2: Yeah, uh, I think that the there's no evidence line is one of the more popular. Um, I think Professor McGrath is right to point that out. And I think it's it's true depending on the sense in which you, you mean it. Uh one of the sort of easiest things about being a new atheist is that your task a lot of the time is actually just poking holes in other people's views. And that's a much easier task than erecting your own worldview in its place. Um indeed that's a that's a point that's made by Justin Briley in his in his uh forthcoming book. I don't know if it's out yet, but he basically says that one of the things that New Atheism failed to do and the reason why it might collapse is because although it's quite good at tearing things down, it's not very good at putting anything up in its place. But in the tearing of, of these arguments down, there are there are a few ways in which we can intuitively look at this. We can say, of course, there are lots of arguments for the existence of God, and some of them are quite interesting and sometimes compelling. Uh, when people say that there isn 't enough evidence i don 't think it 's just the case that there isn 't enough evidence by a sort of normal standard we 're often told, for example, if we talk about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, we say look we 've got uh, yeah multiple sources for the life and times of Jesus that sometimes say slightly different things or leave out various details and it 's really not that much to be going on it 's not sufficient and the response might come, but look the standard of historical evidence, if you look at any other kind of event around that time, the amount of evidence we have is way above the bar. That may be true, but what are we talking about here? We're talking about the most important question in Christianity, and if Christianity is true, therefore the most important question, full stop. In that, From that perspective, I think we perhaps should expect something a little more, something a little bit more... Um, A a bit more confirmation, that is, if the entire process is being supervised and indeed the person supervising this wants us to come to know him. I think that if there is any kind of uh, insufficiency in the evidence, we can't just appeal to what we generally accept in other areas of thinking and epistemology as a way of saying that we should accept that here too. On the science and religion front... I think it's it's true. It's silly to say that science and religion conflict because these are such broad categories. But I think it's fair to say that certain religious claims conflict with certain scientific findings. For example, there are uh, flavors of Christianity like young earth creationism that seem to flatly contradict the findings of modern science. Um, that's, that's not a problem for religion in general, but there are some broader problems. I mean, evolution has famously been one of the most talked about so-called objections to Christianity. Of course, there's nothing in principle that prevents somebody who's a Christian from... Uh, believing in natural selection, but it does raise certain problems. For example, the the specialness of human beings. If human beings are supposed to be special amongst other animals, then if we were to re- resurrect the entire evolutionary tree from our ancestral fish all the way up to a modern homo sapiens, and you stand them all in a line, you get a human, a human, a human, a human, a human, and then they start to get a little bit more like our apish ancestors, maybe something looking a bit like a chimpanzee. But there's no point at which a human being stood next to a chimpanzee. It doesn't work like that. Every single Animal has always given birth to the same species as themselves. And so you kind of have to believe something like the arbitrary breathing of life into one of these animals, such that two identical creatures, both suffering, both struggling for survival, both experiencing all kinds of uh, seriously troubling conditions, I think, one of them gets to inherit eternal life, is subject to the moral law, and is offered compensation for the suffering, but its genetically identical mother is not. If you want to believe that there's a a straight line between humans and other animals, that's the kind of thing you have to believe. Again, nothing in principle wrong with that, but I think it raises a problem that wouldn't exist without the science. Many scientists are religious, indeed, and many have contributed to, to this book. But I also think it's worth noting that there are lots of areas of science, right? In that there are lots of areas of philosophy. Somebody could say, I'm a philosopher and I don't believe in God. That might be true, but you might find that the majority of philosophers don't believe in God, but that the majority of philosophers of religion do and I think that would be um, an important clarification. And I'm not quite sure which area of science would be the most theologically relevant here. So perhaps that's something that's that's worth discussing.
4: Well, Alistair, I would love to talk a little bit about the sort of science religion debate at some point. But perhaps before we do that, why do you think new atheism has rather lost its appeal today?
1: Well, I think it, people have just moved on. This always happens. You know, you have, uh, for example, you take the publication of AJA's um, Language, Truth and Logic. I mean, it caused flurry of activity everyone thought hey you know the world's a different place we've moved on new excitement all these things and then gradually people began to realize nope uh, great to talk about these things but actually you know it's not quite as simple as that i think we do have something here that in many ways richard dawkins has seen our uh, new Orleans as a whole but i think richard dawkins in particular is seen have as having energized a very interesting discussion but we've moved on Um, The new atheism has got itself entangled with the American right in politics. Why on earth? I don't know. It was a very bad mistake, but that happened. And I think we need to say that that has really been a very, very bad misstep on its part. But I think more than that, I think people are just saying, well, actually, uh, A, it is rather more complicated than Richard Dawkins is suggesting, which clearly is the case. But secondly, and I think this, this, this is a point that is definitely worth talking about, is what is Richard Dawkins proposing in the place of religion? It's very, very easy to critique. And we see that, I think, very powerfully in both Dawkins and Hitchens. But what is the alternative that they are proposing? Because Dawkins would very often say, look, you know, in, in certain ways, atheists, people who do not believe in God, who don't have these beliefs, which are so dangerous. But I want to know what their positive beliefs are and how they ground them. I think that's an extremely important point because we haven't really been treated to a proper exposition of that. And I think that's something that uh, really is very, very interesting. It's one thing to say, this is wrong. Well, obviously I want to disagree with that, but I also want to know what do you say and on what grounds do you base it? Because if you are, in effect, saying that there is no God, then I want to know what grounds you actually base those beliefs. So, for instance, points there? But in general terms, um, we just have a new generation arising and they have different interests and different concerns I think one thing things I think is really interesting is, is this. Um, if you were to try and characterize Richard Dawkins, I think I would describe him as a modernist. Now, I'm not critiquing him in any way. I'm simply trying to give a neutral description of where I think I would place him on a map. In other words, um, the things are pretty well defined, and thus, in effect, in, in a world where, in effect, we're into my truth, what I think is right, which somehow trumps what, for example, science might think, I think we're moving into a fresh debate. And actually, I have to say, I have an awful lot of sympathy with Richard Dawkins. But what I do notice is that we are seeing a a, a cultural shift taking place, which means that we are moving on to discuss different questions and we're using different criteria of assessment in doing so. So if you like, the issues are not philosophical, they're cultural. There's what is going on in people's minds, the way in which they self-define, the criteria for rationality which they are adopting which, in effect, are very often, if you like, um, my truth. You know, this is what is true for me. This, therefore, is what you must respect. I think that's a a very interesting trend. So I think there are a number of things going on here. And I'm not quite sure where we go in the future, but I think that's one of the reasons why, in effect, this seems a very interesting discussion from the past. And therefore, I think that does help us to understand why um, people have moved on. So those are some very brief thoughts on what I thought was a rather interesting question.
4: Thanks, Alistair. Well, let's speak to one of those, um, one of the members of that new generation, because Alex, you are a a totally different generation. As you say, you sort of grew up with all of this already established. You didn't see the rise of the new atheism in some senses. So what do you think are some of the contemporary objections to Christianity? I mean, are the big questions for your generation dramatically different from what perhaps Richard Dawkins and his contemporaries were thinking about?
2: I don't think so. Um, But of course, New Atheism is as much a cultural critique as it is a philosophical one. In in fact, it's probably more so. If you look at the treatment um, in The God Delusion of the Philosophical Arguments for God's Existence, I think it's wanting, to say the least. Um, Christopher Hitchens hardly even attempts to address such questions. and When he does, I think displays a fairly obvious confusion when asked, how do you get something from nothing? Uh, For instance, by one of his famous debates uh, by, by Frank Turek, He says, well, what about all the nothing that's to come? Think about the Andromeda galaxy that's coming towards us and we're going to collide with it. And soon enough, the stars will be so far apart that we won't even be able to see anything. That's a whole lot of nothing. You know, the heat death, the end of the universe. Seemingly first not realizing that Christians believe that there's going to be an intervention before that happens, but also not realizing that the question of how something comes from nothing is not a a perfect analog of why there is, so to speak, nothing to come, It, it, it just seems to to completely avoid the question. And I think that's the kind of thing that you often saw with Christopher Hitchens, more of a cultural critique. And so, okay, yes, there's a lot of sort of old news here, but I think that's got to do with the cultural stuff. You know, religion is bad. Religion makes you think bad things. Religion causes wars, this kind of stuff. When people hadn't really considered this in the, in the sense that it hadn't been mainstream public appeal for this kind of thinking, it's quite new and fresh and exciting. Now I think that's been replaced by the whole culture wars, woke culture type thing what 10 years ago 15 years ago we would have turned on fox news or the equivalent of gb news or whatever then and they would have been talking about religion and evolution in schools and now they're talking about you know gender theory in schools instead it's just a cultural shift this happens every 10 15 years something captures the nation but the philosophical arguments remain the same perennially that's very much the problem and part of the um inherent nihilism of being a philosopher and that you realize that you're asking and answering the same questions that Plato and the ancients were, nothing's changed on that front. And so the sustaining arguments for atheism are pretty much as they always have been, the problem of evil, divine hiddenness, considerations about mind and body maybe, that kind of stuff, it it all remains the same, but as do in many ways the religious arguments. Some developments in science tell us uh, interesting things that might inform these arguments. We say, well, look, science has done so much for the philosophy of religion because it's shown, for instance, that the universe had a beginning. Well, it shows that the universe with a small u had a beginning. It doesn't show that there was a beginning of all that could possibly exist. And also, like you know, Al Ghazali thought um, that the universe had a beginning. Of course, we now might be able to confirm that experimentally, but the philosophical arguments that are informed by the universe having beginning uh, have existed for as long as thinking apes have. And so it doesn't actually change that much about the fundamental debate. And equally, there are arguments on the other side. The more we discover, we also discover, for instance, uh, evolution by natural selection is a process that is defined by death and suffering. Survival of the fittest is death and destruction of the weakest. And so we're now in a position to know that the mechanism by which God would have chosen to bring about the variety of species on planet Earth is one that has suffering built into its very system, such that 99.9% of every species, let alone every animal, has ever walked this planet has been brutally wiped from existence by being torn apart by predators or disease or not being fit for its environment. This seems to, again, inform uh, an argument from the problem of evil, but it's still the same problem of evil that was talked about before we discovered natural selection, if you see what I'm saying.
4: Thanks for that, Alex. Alistair, we've only got a couple of minutes before we've got to go to a break, but you talked about this kind of my truth, your truth. I guess relativism is perhaps an issue that is more prominent now. And the other thing I wondered was whether apathy is more of an issue now. So one of the people in the book, Johan Erasmus, who's from South Africa, says, at one stage, many... Christians considered new atheism as the biggest threat to the church. They were wrong. Atheism is not the problem. Apathy is. For quite a few, atheism is just the beginning of the journey. I wondered what you thought of what he said, that actually apathy is the biggest enemy of the church.
1: Well, I think uh, there are many who would say this, this question is simply something I do not wish to think about. It has no relevance for me. It generates controversy. I wish to avoid it, and actually, uh, th- that that is a, a well understood cultural stereotype. The person who does not wish to get involved in these debates because a they fear it might go 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 mad, you know, it might lead to violence, and perhaps more importantly, I, I don't see what relevance it has. And I think we need to say that the options are not theism, atheism, but also agnosticism. And I think uh, you know I have enormous respect for principle of agnosticism, which is simply saying the evidence is not good enough to allow me to make any decision at all. So that is a kind of uh, additional point you would bring in this discussion. So certainly I would say that we are seeing cultural changes taking place, not uniformly, but uh, in different forms in different places. And it's very, very difficult to construct a global picture. I think that um, there is no doubt that in the the West, things have changed quite significantly and that um, new questions are being asked. And I think that my own view is as someone who's been quite involved in New Atheism, I find the new questions being asked rather more interesting than the old ones. So I think, I think you know, it's, it's actually, if you like, it's, it's refreshing to see that these new debates are opening up because that, they're much more interesting. So I think that's, that's what I think. So I think that uh, it's very important to think about the New Atheist critique of religion and ask what can be learned from them. Uh, I I think that's something we ought to do, but there are others now stepping in to say, let's talk about this instead. And I think I'm very tempted to go with them and say, yes, we do need to talk about these things. Let's do it and see where these take us.
4: Well, thank you so much, Alistair. And thanks, Alex. We're going to take a very quick break. I'm here with Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor, but we would also love to hear your thoughts. So do drop us an email, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or you can get in touch via social media at UnbelievableFE for Twitter or Premier Unbelievable on Facebook. We'll be back in just a moment to carry on this wonderful discussion.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus's Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you.
4: Welcome back to the second part of our discussion with Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Alex, you said in the previous show with Vince Vitale that you were already familiar with a lot of the arguments in this book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. But I guess as I was reading it, I was wondering, is there anything in particular that struck you about some of the conversions or the personal testimonies? Because if it wasn't the arguments, was there anything about their stories that that you found particularly interesting or surprising?
2: Well, there's always an element of envy uh, in that I, I'm i firmly convinced that the principal mechanism for bringing somebody to uh, faith in God is some kind of experience. That doesn't necessarily mean a religious experience where you sort of have a, a pool line conversion or anything of the sort, uh, but some kind of uh, narrative. When people are asked about why they come to believe in God, as you can read in this book, they tell a story. They don't give you a syllogism. And so the thing that really stands out to me is the obviousness with which that jumps off the page, that it's something about a, a a narrative and it does make me wonder why that's not a narrative that every character in this, you know, um, sort of earthly performance gets to experience. That is the problem of divine hiddenness essentially. Uh, And so I, I mean, The more sort of personally experiential a story gets, the more I can really sort of understand why somebody might have come to believe in God, but the less applicable it becomes to somebody else. The more you generalize, the more you say, well, here are some considerations that might work for you. Suddenly you're getting a bit abstract, and it loses the personal touch that, you know, carries the entire attractiveness of religious faith in the first place. So there's a bit of a kind of, um, a bit of an impasse here. The, the the more general you get, the less personal you get, the more people you're going to be able to sort of have applying something to their lives, but the less personally they're going to be able to apply it, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it's a wonderful collection of stories, but I can't say that news of somebody else's personal experiences and conversions particularly move me to uh, feel like I'm going to have a similar experience.
4: I mean, you have spoken about this quite a lot. So do you think that's the the one thing that would really convince you to believe in God, to have that irrefutable, tangible experience of God?
2: Well, I know that that uh, probably would. I, I can't say it's quite the only thing. I mean, there might be some kind of argument or reflection upon an argument or expression of an argument in a new way that, that just makes something sort of logically click. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, becoming a, a confessional Christian, a, a a somebody who feels like they're in a relationship with another human being i don't think that's at the end of an argument i think that's at the the middle of some kind of experience i don't know what that experience quite would look like but i think it would be in that in that category i don't think i've become convinced of god in a classroom or in a book in so much as i might be uh you know out in the real world as it were
4: There was a quote actually from um, Rafiq Samuel, who's a young philosopher who's based in Egypt. And I just wondered what you made of what he says, Alex. He says, no matter how convincing the Christian case seemed to be, God's hiddenness was still my fundamental stumbling block. Becoming a Christian was not just an intellectual decision. I needed to develop a sense of love and intimacy towards Jesus to submit to him as my Lord and Savior. Is that something that you resonate with?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, In that we're being told that what's on offer here is a relationship, not just an ontological claim, but a relational one. Uh, And so it makes sense to me that it will be through some kind of relational experience that, that success would be achieved in that regard.
4: Now, Alistair, do you think that this struggle with divine hiddenness, I guess for want of a better phrase, is one of the most common objections to belief in God? And if so, how would you, I guess, as an apologist, as a scientist, as a former atheist who became a Christian, how would you respond to that question of divine hiddenness?
1: Well, certainly I've met some people who have talked about this, and I think therefore we we must take it very seriously. As a scientist, one thing you should become very much aware of is the importance of theory. Theory, in effect, preconditions you to Expect certain things, not to expect other things. In other words, if you like, it sensitizes you towards certain things, it desensitizes you towards others. And one of the key points that uh, needs to be made in um, original philosophy of science is that uh, very often, if you adopt a specific theory, in effect, you look for certain things and you're blinded to other things. You know, Einstein is, made the very famous point you know, that, that, that theory, in effect, determines what you see. The theory you're really committed to and need to bear in mind that actually we're all already committed implicitly to certain theories. The idea of um, theory-laden observation really is very important. So I think if there's an expectation that there is no God, no no spiritual world, then in effect you're not really likely to find it. I think there's this sense in which you are already locked into a certain way of thinking. And for me, I think one of the key things is, is there something which happens, which in effect says... I need a kind of gestalt switch in other words uh i need to think of think about this in a different way i need to put on a different set of spectacles i'm always fascinated by wittgenstein's wonderful quotes you know i uh, we were held captive by a picture a beetle You know that the the, uh, the picture we had of things in effect imprisoned us it determined what we saw and of course if we take this analogy further you know in effect it's inviting us to say well what other pictures are there can we in effect use other pictures to um to look through and see the world and this seems to me a very important line of observation for me as an atheist and i I, as a teenager you know you know god was just non-existent end of you know in effect i i I didn't look because (laughs) there's nothing to look for you know it it was if you like you know i was crystallized into a preconceived way of thinking i was very happy with it so i didn't really bother to challenge it and then beginning to realize that perhaps things were not quite as simple and one one of the things i needed to do in effect was to put on different theoretical sets of spectacles and try looking at the world in different ways so i think this idea of the hiddenness of god is very important if you're saying that a god is not um is not is not obvious you know to a to a, a, a neutral person I, I can go along with that um but i think it's all a question of, of in effect what moves us to start looking at this one of the things I thought was really interesting about this collection of essays is that, uh, as Alex was saying, it's a set of stories. Uh, and stories, that you know, they're binding on nobody, but they're illuminating because they, they do in effect say, here, here is how certain people in effect be- thought like this, then, then tell us how they began to think like this. And I think it's really interesting um, whether I agree with these people or not. The actual narration of the process of realignment and rediscovery is fascinating because this is how human beings work. And they work by, in effect, um, trying to make sense of things very often when the evidence is not good enough. And yet they feel they, they need to make a decision. Like a bit like you know, William James' famous essay. Um, he, he brings out the fact that psychologically there's something about us that feels we need to make a decision even though the evidence is not compelling either in this direction or in that direction. So I I find them really interesting. Certainly, they highlight some of the problems. They also, I think, begin to illustrate some solutions. And they all illustrate how wonderful stories are. And in effect, telling us what happened to people, but also opening up questions for discussion. So I think pedagogy, it's a really interesting thing.
4: Alistair, was personal experience a key part of your story? Because obviously there was the academic research, you were looking into the evidence, but there must have come a point where you sort of had to make that decision. Did, did personal experience play a part in that? Because obviously that's something that's a, a huge question for Alex and lots of atheists is that idea of actually, uh, unless God has revealed himself to me personally, it's quite difficult to make that decision, that step.
1: Well, I, I may not be representative, let me make that clear. I'm just, I'm just me. Um, but my conversion, if I use that word, was completely intellectual. It was dispassionate. It was it was extremely dull. <laughs> it was really, you know, I, I used to think this. Now I think this. I, I mean, it wasn't if the heavens opened or anything like that, or I had a sort of uh, a zap of something that made me feel, hey, this is great. It was much more, this is better. This is a better way of thinking than that. And I'm a thinking person, so I'm, I'm going to go this way. And, and it w- it was almost calculated, it was, it was not emotional. And then what happened is, it, when you when you step into a new theory, you begin to inhabit it, you begin to open it up, you begin to discover that actually, this does enable you to see things a different way, it changes the way you experience things. And so you begin to realize where it takes you. But in my own case, I have to say, and you'll think you a terribly dull person, um, <laughs> there, was, there was no experience at all. It was it was really cold and rational. But then you see, uh, maybe I'm a cold and rational person. I mean, one of the reasons I was drawn to atheism is because it seemed to me to be very cold and impersonal. That uh, I felt this is this is good. There's none of this sort of um, experiential stuff, which I didn't really like very much.
4: Alex, what do you make of that? That uh, Alistair's experience was rather dull. <laughs>
2: Well I know it I know it does happen and I suppose that kind of conversion uh, story might be overrepresented in academia, for example. There's, if, if somebody is willing to devote themselves to uh, study and, and argument and, and, um, and that, that kind of way of thinking then then perhaps that is just the way that the, the way that your brain works. and I know that there are examples of people who do. Uh, become convinced through seemingly argument alone. I think I referenced Anthony Flew before, perhaps even in the previous episode, as an example of someone who at least ostensibly did the same. Uh, but then I do also agree. I, I mean, in in saying that there's no experience involved. I, well, I find it interesting that this comes after talking about putting on new theoretical goggles. I think was the was the phrase. This seems to be a way of describing changing the way that you interact with the world. And I actually agree that it, entirely that this is the case. I recorded a podcast with uh, a man called Anil Seth, who's a philosopher of consciousness and um, at the University of Sussex. And he wrote a book called Being You, which is a fascinating overview of some of the recent developments in the science of consciousness. And his personal theory, or the theory that he he promotes is that consciousness is is something like a meeting in the middle of inputs and outputs. That is, it's not just that your brain is this sort of blank slate that just takes in information and and processes it as it is, but it's also not the case that you invent the entire world around you. There really is a a microphone in front of me, but the way it looks, the way that I I position it in in my sort of uh, spatial dimensions around me, that kind of stuff is something like a projection of the brain and it's something like a meeting in the middle. And we talked about, I mean, you'll probably be familiar with the, with the black and blue dress that was a phenomenon across the internet where people couldn't agree on the colour of this dress and it probably has something to do with the white balance of the camera. There are examples of these kinds of illusions where, which are all the more fascinating because you can choose what it is that you hear or what you see. So the best example, I think, is this, this toy of some sort that also went viral for saying brainstorm. The toy, you press the button, and it says brainstorm. But if you listen to it, and you listen for the words green needle, you hear the words green needle instead. And it's like the black and blue dress thing. It's phenomenal. If you haven't listened to it, just type in brainstorm green needle into YouTube, and and you can go as many times as you like, and whichever one you're listening for is just the one you hear. It is phenomenal. And we were just talking about how does the brain do this? Why does this happen? How is this even possible? And what we realize is an implication of this that you do hear or see or experience, I guess, what you expect to. This is a sort of crude, obvious example, but we think that this extrapolates at least slightly. If you expect to hear Green Needle, you hear Green Needle. You actually do. Okay, so if you expect to see God in the world, then you see God in the world. You actually do. So I agree that that's the case, but I do think this sort of goes both ways, right? Because if I said the same thing as an atheist, it would sound like a criticism of religion. Yeah, well, you know, you just expect to find religion in the world. You sort of go into it with a sort of pre-existing religious framework. And so of course you're gonna see evidence abounding for God's existence. And of course you're gonna see his hand working in the sort of minuscule aspects of your daily life because you come to expect it. That's the thing. If you sort of take off those goggles for a moment and look at the world through a materialist's lens, you know, consider that hypothesis, you'd see that it's equally plausible and, and equally livable. And I don't know if that's true, but if, if that is the case, then In theory, I think this works better as an argument for uh, at least agnosticism if the argument doesn't have to be something like, well, my goggles are better than yours, but my goggles see just as clearly as yours. That is, you know, if I put on a materialistic lens and look at the world, do I see God's hand working in my daily life? Like, not really. Um, Maybe in some poetic sense. But if it is the case that you can change that just by putting on different metaphorical goggles... Uh, I don't know if you'll agree with me that that seems to be more of a trouble for religious belief than it is a help for it.
4: Well, Alex, I would love to know, is there anything outside of that kind of personal experience that would convince you that God does exist, that that you could legitimately believe in God?
2: I'd like to say uh, a sound, valid argument. Um, of course, there are many valid arguments for God's existence. The question is whether the premises are sound. Um, There's a bit of a sleight of hand that's often played. Well, not a sleight of hand, I shouldn't say that, but people talk about the use of deductive arguments and say that the conclusion has to follow from the premises, which is true and sort of trying to lend this air of certainty to religious philosophy. But of course, any premise is itself going to have to be justified unless we take it as axiomatic. And that will either be justified by a deductive or an inductive uh, argument. And so you just sort of push the problem back to the to the establishment of the premises. So for example, if I could become simultaneously convinced um, that moral truths exist, at the same time as being convinced that moral truths can't exist without God, then that's it, job done. It would only take one argument that's valid, both of the premises which I come to be convinced of, that would entail the conclusion if I, if I want to consider myself to be rational. So it's, it doesn't need to be quite as grand as proving God's existence per se. Like right now, I mean, I, I'm not sure what I think about uh, morality only being possible with some kind of moral authority but I'm, I'm open to the idea I think that that has some intuitive appeal if morality can exist at all it kind of depends what we mean by it but if I'm if I'm sort of willing to grant that then if somebody can show me that well actually yeah moral truths definitely do exist whether you're an atheist or not like you you can't deny the existence of moral truths for this reason then maybe that would do it it's it's, it's hard to say um, but that's the Kind of thing that I might be looking for. So there are sort of areas of argumentation that that might work, um, but it's it's unfortunately difficult to know un, until it happens. I, I find that the most powerful arguments, the most powerful considerations, do seem to strike out of nowhere, where you sort of read a line in a book or you hear something phrased in a particular way. I think um, that's why Hitchens is very good at doing this for atheism, and C.S. Lewis is very good at doing this for theism. I think they're sort of equal opposites of each other in terms of the cultural significance they play in the development of like teenage theists and atheists reading these books sentences like poetry and just being so impressed by the analogy that's been picked or the phrasing that's been used that something just clicks it makes perfect sense i remember thinking about science and religion for example and this idea that we can just explain away uh anything that traditionally is explained by religion with scientific laws, you know, we no know longer need the idea of a sort of authority. And I'm sure it was C.S. Lewis who was, who was writing about the question of why it is that um, some character, I think it's like a character in Hamlet, I haven't read or seen Hamlet, but, you know, why does this character die? Is it because somebody stepped on a twig, as as happens in the narrative? Or is it because Shakespeare wanted this character to die? And it seemed like both were true. And I thought, what a wonderful analogy. And that got me thinking about this is a broader analogy people who say we don't need god anymore because we've explained like the universe in terms of scientific laws it suddenly read to me like people saying we don't need an author for the book anymore because we've discovered all of these literary laws we've discovered that you know the sonnets of shakespeare they all follow a certain pattern they all follow a certain law of of you know how many syllables there are and the the rhyme schemes and this kind of stuff and so of course, we haven't explained everything yet, but we've we've explained so much now that we didn't have before with these laws of literature that I don't think we need the hypothesis of an author anymore you'd You'd be like, "What are you talking about you' You're thinking in a in a different resolution of thought. That kind of consideration i think is a is a powerful one in undermining this entire way of thinking about what scientific laws actually are and what they do and what they can do, and that just strikes out of nowhere because you're reading c s Lewis and he just says one particular sentence and uses an analogy that sticks with you. Uh, So, uh, a rather convoluted answer to your question, um, I don't know until it happens.
4: Well, Alistair, it's interesting that Alex there mentioned C.S. Lewis, because he was quite uh, significant in your own conversion. I mean, do you think there are any particularly compelling arguments for the existence of God, Alistair, Or do you think it really depends where someone is and what their questions are?
1: Well, I think that that's right. Alex has made a very good point. I mean, basically all arguments for or against God depend on such an entangled network of presuppositions and uh, assumptions, which actually very often lie beyond proof that very often you simply end up saying we, we we can't really rely on these because they, they are so deeply embedded in assumptions which need to be challenged and critiqued and, and in fact uh, you know it is really quite frustrating in some ways but it's frustrating precisely because these things are much more complex and contested than we might uh, think of so i think um while i think for me as a scientist, I think, I think we have to say this is very important for me. For as a scientist, I intuitively think in certain ways, which is basically what what way of thinking, way of imagining actually seems to be um to, to make most sense of things. And and obviously there are an awful lot of philosophical assumption better than that. I and mean, we could talk about that. But I think one of the key things for me really is that um I gradually came to to the view that um that believing in God made more sense of things than not believing in. But if you were then to say to me, prove that's right, well, I can't. Uh, just like my opponents would not be able to prove that they're right. And the real difficulty is that we do have to realize, I think, that if you have a belief which is about ultimate things, for example, whether there's a God or what is good, what is evil, then that rests upon such a complex network of assumptions. You are never going to be able to prove that you're right. And I think that, that, that for me, um, as i get older and maybe it's because i'm more skeptical in the sense of critical of simplistic solutions but it seems to me really that um it is very very difficult i think to actually um demonstrate all the beliefs that we rest our lives upon to 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 be to be correct i think that's one of the things that we find very difficult i mean for example remember reading sam harris and and, uh, you know, Alex already mentioned Sam Harris and, and Sam Sam argument that actually torture can be in some circumstances justified. I think no, no, I'm I'm a I'm sort of a very soggy liberal person in some ways, and I think that this is, this is wrong. But deep down, I know I could not prove to a critical um debater that I am wrong in saying that torture is wrong. See, I'm saying it is it's a deep intuition, really deep. But if you were to say, prove it's right, I couldn't do it. And that's true of so many of our fundamental beliefs, which is why I I think I am a little bit sceptical of our ability to resolve all of these questions. But I do think it's very important to be able to reflect on them and at least offer some kind of partial justification for why we think this rather than that. And also, as Isaiah Berlin was always pointing out, let's have a civilised conversation, because these things are so deep that actually um, we are all thinking people, and very often we, propose different ideas not because we haven't thought about them, because we have thought about them and actually that that we're divergent here we have to have a sort if you like a sort of um pluralism of of values and that's very very difficult to accept but Maybe that's the way it is.
4: Well, Alistair, again, we're coming to the end of this episode. Sorry I always throw to you right at the end. Um, but we've we've already touched on this a little bit. But but obviously, sort of contrary to Dawkins' assumption in, in this book, The God Delusion, that faith effectively means to kind of believe despite the evidence that faith is blind, your own journey, as you've talked about already, reflects many of the stories in coming to faith through Dawkins in that you largely came to faith through investigating the evidence. I guess... Um, what, you know, How do you sort of reconcile being a Christian and a scientist? Because for you, they're not opposite w- worldviews in some sense, are they? You are perfectly able to reconcile the two.
1: Well, I wouldn't say perfectly able to because th- these are complex entities. I mean, I mean, which science are we talking about? I think uh, Alex has already raised some very good points here. What I would say is that I find a way of holding together what I regard to be really important about faith and really important about science. And that these seem to me to be um, very significant. Um, if, if you want to mention, I think who quite influential upon me, it's Albert Einstein, who I studied in detail at Oxford. But I mean that, that that's that's just a catalyst to my thinking. I don't agree with Einstein on everything, but I think basically, as far as I think, is that very often the question is not I'm concerned. These are always holding these together, and the real difficulty, purely academic, you know what what the relative states these arguments is very much how individual people kind of way bring these together and hold them together in a meaningful way inside their heads It's it's a very crude way of thinking but basically what we find is that if you take several people looking at the same basic universe they will come to different conclusions not because they're stupid but because things are really complicated that's one of the reasons why i you know i I'm a religious believer. I'm absolutely clear about that, but I'm respectful. You know, I, I know that these things are complex and therefore I'm very happy to say, look, we we need to kind of understand how everybody's arrived at their conclusions and see if we can have a conversation about
4: it. Alistair, do you think in part the conflict narrative between God and science has partly been put into people's heads through the New Atheist movement or, or was it there before?
1: No, it was there before. I mean, it, it's hard to say when it began. I mean, Most historians would say that before 1800, it's really very hard to find this narrative, certainly not in early natural philosophy. Um, It begins to come into play in the 19th century, and I would say particularly in North America, although again, there's a vast literature on this, I don't want to prejudge it. And then it is right that New Atheism, particularly Dawkins and Hitchens, draws on this. I mean... Uh, I, I I would say actually new atheism well depends on this narrative of points. but I think the, the key point is it's a cultural trope, it's a cultural construction um, and very often involves rereading historical episodes like for example, Galileo or something like that through this lens, whereas in fact, Galileo needs to be read through multiple lenses, And if you only use this lens, you only see what this lens allows. And that's the critical point, that very often with a complex situation, there are multiple elements, and they're all shown up by different theoretical approaches. So uh, it is, in my view, a recent development. Um, I'm. It's also a Western development. I mean, if you, it's, it's not really there in India, to give you a very obvious example. So I think what you could say is it's a culturally conditioned and culturally... Located narrative, um, which arose for reasons or or, or really evident in late 19th century culture. Uh, That doesn't mean that there's no tension between science and religion. There are points where I think there are perfectly valid debates to be had. But in terms of them being incompatible, well, no, they're different. They're different. But actually, that, that is one of the ways in which we expand our vision of reality by realizing that we need to go beyond what we feel comfortable with and try and find out what more there is to be said.
4: Well, thank you so much for that. We do need to, I'm afraid, take a quick break, but we'll be hearing more from Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor very shortly. So don't forget to let us know what you think by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk and we will see you in just a moment. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion about new atheism with Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about kind of the future of into religious debate and, and and what has in some ways sort of replaced new atheism. But before we do that, um, Alex, one of the things that really struck me as I was reading The God Delusion, it was in some ways sort of the absence of Jesus. Whereas in this book, the Coming to Faith Through Dawkins book, Jesus appears quite a lot, sort of as a significant figure for some of those individuals in the book. I just want to read a couple of lines um, from what some of the other people have said in in this book about Jesus, and then I'd love to know what you think as someone who studied theology, Alex, but but as an atheist. Um, so this is the historian Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. She says Jesus's words gave me a hope that I never had as an atheist in the dark moments before I knew God all i had was despair and then Rafiq samuel who we've already mentioned who is egyptian um is egyptian <laughs> said jesus was almost everything that i wanted god to be and then finally um <laughs> her story's fascinating ashley land who became a christian largely through sort of via psychological uh, psychedelic drugs i mean there really is a plethora of different stories in this book she said i trusted jesus in a way i'd never trusted acid or yoga or meditation because he was a person alex obviously you've studied Jesus to a certain extent through theology and you've sort of done lots of wide reading about Jesus. What are your thoughts about Jesus?
2: Well, um, I think Jesus embodies a a commendable ethic and a sense of forgiveness that, that the sort of centrality of forgiveness in the, the Christian message, I think, is something that's difficult to fully comprehend or understand until um, a person really reckons with the evil that exists within them. Oftentimes, when we sort of have these debates about Christianity and the ethics of forgiveness, it, it's sort of painted as, a, as an immoral uh, doctrine. You know, Christopher Hitchens was big on this, the idea of vicarious redemption, the idea that you can sort of Throw your sins upon another person as if they can pay or not just pay your fine for you, but absolve you of the guilt for it Um, This and and of course there's also this this trope about the idea of someone like Jeffrey Dahmer being able to get into heaven if he simply says sorry Um, The idea being that if I go around murdering people and and then just say sorry, I, I make it into heaven I think we're thinking a bit legalistically about this. This would never work in terms of criminal justice because if somebody just said sorry, that, that, would, that wouldn't pay for the crime. But morally speaking, in terms of, um, in terms of the, just, just the philosophy of this, I, I mean, imagine for a second, like really actually think about doing that. Think about what it would actually mean to be sorry for committing a murder. That is, you wake up tomorrow, say, and you find yourself responsible for the death of an innocent person. How would you feel? it's not some trivial, oh, I guess I'll just say sorry and get into heaven. No, in order to be sorry, in order for it to be genuine repentance, in other words, you would have to actually bear the weight of the guilt of that act. Now, just imagine for a second what you think that might feel like. That might still not be enough to make up for what you've done, but I think it's certainly something stronger and something more and something, it's much more of a cost being paid, in other words, in genuine repentance than is often sort of portrayed in this caricature of the situation. That is, people like to invent the worst possible crime they can imagine and then the most casual possible apology. I don't think that's even conceptually possible. You can't have a casual apology for a serious crime because it wouldn't be a legitimate apology. You wouldn't seriously be sorry. And so the idea that you can find yourself in a position of genuine regret for the way that you've lived your life, that you can be not just somebody who's had misfortune in their lives, but also somebody who's committed injustice themselves, and have this sort of equal gift of redemption. I think is the the thing that moves people when it comes to the figure of Jesus. The thing that sort of makes their legs wobble a little bit is is this feeling of sort of humility in the face of of this 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 forgiveness. Um, I think it's it's fascinating. Like at the end of, uh, I mean, we've mentioned C.S. Lewis a few times. At the end of uh, the the, the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Um, it's been a little while since I've seen it, but I think it's, who is it that ends up being the just? I think it's Edward the just. And it's Edward who is the, Edmund, Edmund the just, that's right, Edmund the just. And of course it's Edmund who is the one that betrays the group. And the interesting thing here is that, you know, the one who becomes just in the end, the one who's sort of granted this particular ability to understand justice is not the person who's been a victim of it. It's not like they've been trampled underfoot and therefore have a real care for justice, but because they've actually committed an injustice themselves. And it's by doing that that this person now becomes essentially particularly attuned to justice. I think there's, there's, there's something about that that's embodied in the Christian message as well, that like this recognition of your ability to be unjust yourself is crucial in a development of a real appreciation for what justice is and why we should value it. And so I think that's the main thing that I take away from the the character of Jesus but to be honest I'm, I'm sort of just um, free associating at this point so I apologize if it's a bit of a bit of an incoherent answer.
4: <laughs> Alistair was the person of Jesus significant in your transition from atheism to, to Christianity?
2: Yes
1: at one point I mean I don't, I don't tell you about that but first of all I won't say how much I appreciate what Alex said I, I may have been free-floating but it's actually I thought very perceptive in terms of you know identifying something while Dawkins not talk about him very much my guess is he's arguing against religion in general and therefore doesn't want to be too particularist but certainly it, it is it is curious because certainly if you look at this book coming today through dawkins so you're quite right and jesus plays an enormous role in those which is not actually balanced uh echoed in the original God delusion um let me tell you how this came to be important for me um i was um as an atheist um i i said look you know here am i i'm in space time down here uh if there's a god god's kind of way up there in heaven or wherever it is and there is no connection between us at all you know uh, you know god's complete irrelevance like a a teapot orbiting jupiter or something like that um and that really uh, i can't see what this is all about and one particular aspect of christian theology which at that time i did not understand but was explained to me by friends at oxford was the idea of the incarnation which is this uh, christian idea that um the word became flesh that christ entered into our world and, and in doing so god comes to where we are humbles himself and in effect offers to do various things and actually that was very important to me because in effect if you like it was the intellectual framework suddenly Said actually, this 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 begins to answer that question I had. Now you'll say well, actually, <laughs> this is a very intellectualized way of thinking about Jesus, and and you're right. But actually, it was it was what I needed at that time. And you remember I made the point earlier about um, a theoretical framework being very important because it means you you start to look at things if you like. What I then did was to take what I thought was a Christian lens and start looking through it, testing it out for, like seeing what difference it made, and and then coming to think about christ and actually the kind of reflections alex has very helpfully given us actually those are good those are the kind of thoughts we ought to have and it it took me in in a slightly different direction because in effect it was saying to me something like um here is a god with a face here is a god who can be known not just known about here is someone who knows what's like to suffer to exist in history to suffer the limited conditions of this etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can see how all of this began to cascade in my mind in the kind of this actually makes, this makes quite a lot of sense and so that it did play quite a significant role in my own thinking um and i think actually it's quite interesting just to see how those thoughts are echoed um, in the book. I mean, I, I talk to none of these people, so it, it, there's no way of influence at all. These are their own thoughts. They're completely autonomous and spontaneous. But it's interesting to see how that theme keeps emerging.
4: Alex, I'm always really intrigued that you have got so many Christian friends, many of whom are incredibly intelligent. And um, one of the things, again, I was really struck rereading The God Delusion, as someone who studied theology, like both of you, was, was that kind of. Uh, the, the assertion of of Dawkins that actually religious people are, are often very irrational um, compared to, say, atheist scientists. As someone Alex who's got lots of intelligent believer friends, how do you respond to Dawkins' assertion that they are often a bit stupid if you are if you believe in God?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's just it's it's just obvious that you can be you can be intelligent you can be stupid and and hold all kinds of different beliefs uh, of course that there's stupidity that somebody can have in their approach to a particular argument and when you consider that richard dawkins has spent time uh conversing with and looking at the writings and and speeches of of some of the worst of what christianity has to offer it's it's no surprise that he developed such an opinion but it's you know if you want to see the other side just just look on Twitter. You know, I I recently conducted something of an experiment thinking of making a video out of this. I tweeted out, can you prove God's existence in a tweet? Just to see what people might come up with. And I got a whole load of of wonderful responses. Some people presenting arguments, some people saying that the existence of a tweet itself is evidence because it's a contingent object and all contingency must be grounded in in a necessary being. Brilliant. Then you also get some people sort of, because I'm saying, can you prove God's existence? You get a lot of atheists who are basically saying, no, you can't. And then I put out a tweet saying, can you disprove God's existence in a, in a tweet? And you get a lot of Christian people saying like, well, if God existed, why would he allow you to tweet such stupid things and, and, and stuff like this? And, and so you sort of see both sides of it. And if you're on Twitter, you're getting a lot of responses. And every now and again, a tweet comes up and you look at it and you think, my goodness, that was a an unthinking thing to say, should we say. Um, but this happens everywhere, all the time. I, I just I just don't understand the mentality of somebody who says that no no, stupidity is the uh is is sort of within the jurisdiction of religious thinking only. It's like it, it just tells me that you're not spending time with I mean, people like to say, Oh, I spend time with other people, oh I listen to the other side. What do you mean by that? Like what do you really mean by that? Do you mean that you had an argument with someone on Twitter once? Do you mean that someone you went to school with was a Christian and you used to sort of debate at lunchtime? Or do you mean that you've if you're an atheist have you been to church with them and not sort of going to like pick up but just going to see what it's like to experience as a christian with your christian friends because you know it would mean a lot to them because they're your actual friends have you you know like and and likewise if 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 you're a christian like spending time with the other side doesn't mean sort of patronizingly listen to an atheist talk about the problem of evil and then offering a theodicy to them or, or telling them to read the book of job or something it, it means like really reflecting with them on the on the nature of suffering or something like that, you know. Do you actually spend time with these people as human beings? If you do, then you'll see that, that like intelligence, if if there's even a, a sort of remotely accurate way to measure this properly, is distributed evenly. I don't think it sort of changes the average distribution of intelligence of someone you might meet if you give me their religious beliefs. It doesn't tell me a thing about whether I should expect them to be above or below average in terms of their critical faculties, if you know what I mean.
4: That's really helpful, Alex. Thank you so much. Alistair, we will move on to the, the sort of future of where we think this is going. But just quickly, as a, as a professor of theology, what do you make of Dawkins' fairly dismissive attitude towards theology in The God Delusion*?
1: Well, it would help a lot if you read some. Um, it's simple as that. Um, Dawkins seems to see it as a badge of honour not to read theology. And I mean, I, I I I love people critiquing theology, but they need to know something about it, to have read people, and now that I have to say, really, this very often you have the impression this is somebody who operates with caricatures, misunderstandings. There are serious atheists out there who know what they're talking about. I'd rather talk to them. But Alex's point is good, you know, that there are intelligent atheists, there are intelligent Christians, there are intelligent, there are intelligent people, and they take different perspectives, and that's a paradox for all these fundamentalist thinkers who want to say if you believe in this whether it's atheism or christianity or whatever then you are stupid and i'm afraid there are people like that around that we just need to say you know wise up grow up get some more friends you
2: know because it's, it's not that simple yeah and, and and have them as friends don't interact like it doesn't just mean go to the pub with your christian friend and talk about christianity it means go to the pub with your christian friend and and talk about like what they've been doing with their day talk about what book they're reading talk about relationships and girls and stuff like this and and you might begin to see that their christian worldview informs a lot of these things but you know don't 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 see it as a sort of badge of honor oh look how many christian friends i've got because i'm so like reasonable yeah. and balanced it's like no it's just by it's by pure chance that that i've i've developed a wealth of friends with a difference of opinions and we don't always talk about christianity although we probably do most of the time, to be honest with you. <laughs> um,
4: well, let's talk a little bit about the future and where we kind of think this is going as, as we come to the end of the podcast. So in, in coming to Faith Reed Dawkins, one of the scientists in that book, Cy Gart, writes, I predict that within a few years, someone will coin a new phrase, new atheism is dead. God, not so much. And Alistair, you obviously think that new atheism is waning, but do you see anything rising up to replace it at all? Well, I
2: think
1: there are several things that are happening that I think will change the landscape. One is, and actually um, Alex has hinted at this, is the increased use of social media, which means you do not interact with people directly. Very often you it exists in an echo chamber, and that gets in the way of understanding, it gets in the way of dialogue, and that's going to polarise. So I'm very worried about that. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing, I can, is, is perhaps if I'm I a little bit pessimistic. Sure, the New Atheism is receding into the background. There'll be other things next to talk about. Uh, in other words, it, it, there are all these debates that take place. And if you like, what very often happens is the focus is on something, then the focus shifts. And I'm sure that there'll be other major issues we're talking about. And from a Christian perspective, you've got to be prepared to enter into whatever these particular debates are. In my own case, because of my scientific background, I might be able to play a role in that particular debate in the past, but I have no idea what's going to happen next, and I don't find going to be much use in taking part in it. But I think that really what I would say is that the, the important thing is to appreciate that um, if, you've, if, if you deep down believe you are right, that should not make you arrogant that should actually simply give you a secure base to use that wonderful phrase from social psychologist John Bowlby for some serious conversations where you do not feel threatened, but rather be able to have a conversation about something deep, holding your own, but learning from others. And that I think is something very important. We need to, in effect, allow ourselves to develop the sense of being in a secure place. And this 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 makes sense to us. But this does not Exempt us from engaging with other people respectfully and intelligently because there's so much to be learned. And I, for one, um, I, while I'm not sure what lies ahead, uh, look at the history of Christianity. There have been so many debates in the past and will be in the future. And the important thing is simply to learn from the past and be able to engage with the future.
4: Well, that's why I so appreciate conversations like this. And I so appreciate how respectful you both have been of each other. Now, Alex, I know that you have read Justin Briley's new book and you've had him on your podcast. Um, And in his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, I'm also not sure whether it's come out yet, but have a Google and buy it if it has come out because it's really good. Um, But Justin suggests that people like Jordan Peterson and Tom Holland, the historian, not Superman, just to be clear, they've perhaps become popular because... Because maybe they're scratching an itch for meaning and he sort of meets the possibility that perhaps there's this innate religiosity among people today. I mean, what do you make of that? The idea that perhaps people are becoming a little bit more open to some of these questions and some of the people that we see, we've not got these kind of aggressive um, atheistic voices, but we've got these people who are actually a lot more aware of Christianity and a lot more sort of pro the Christian story.
2: I think things just sort of ebb and flow, culturally speaking. It's a similar thing that happens with politics. You tend to find that there's like a culture and a counterculture. And people always like to feel as though they're sort of fighting against the orthodoxy. They like to think they've discovered something cool. It's like finding a new band or something. It's really cool if you discover it yourself, but if they suddenly become really popular, it's almost you like you want to either disavow them or say that you liked their old stuff before they become became popular. There's something sort of personal about it. There's something that makes you feel like you've stumbled upon something special. And so I think that when there's a culture permeated by religious thought, your parents are religious, your schooling's religious, you know, institutions generally are religious or at least pay lip service. The concept of religiosity, when you discover this cool, edgy atheism stuff, you think, ah, this is fun. This is cool. Now, I think it's fair to say that like atheism pervades much of Western thought and Western society, partly thanks to the success of new atheism, or maybe partly a cause of the success of new atheism. Um, Politicians in the United Kingdom, different in the United States, don't really talk about God. It doesn't really come up that much. In fact, there's a big controversy about the head of state, um, around the time of the coronation being the defender of the faith or defender of the faiths, plural, because of course we live in a pluralistic society now. And so it's, it's, it's all about diversity of thought and religious tolerance and this kind of thing. So when somebody sort of discovers actually, no, there might be something to there being actually such a thing as truth value that isn't relative to other human beings. they think they've, they've discovered something interesting and a little bit again, countercultural, And so yeah, the, the sort of the interest sparks up, uh, especially because someone like Jordan Peterson or someone like Tom Holland, the reason why, you know, they experience this kind of popularity in this realm might have something to do with the fact that they're not explicitly speaking religious Christian. That is, it's no surprise when you hear a Christian talking about this kind of stuff. But if you hear an atheist in an atheistic dominated space, like the, the YouTube space that someone like Jordan Peterson now occupies, arguably is the kind of space that would have lent itself to more atheistic thinking because that's the culture of that space when somebody says actually maybe there is this thing called meaning and objectivity it's got that kind of oh that's a bit edgy that's a bit interesting kind of thing and i I think that so i think it just sort of goes back and forth i don't think we can sort of judge a trajectory either way but i do think that um if atheism entails some form of nihilism then it's basically like unlivable in, in that people will sort of their, their soul will start to crumble away until they find something else to, to put on an analogy I've used before is it's sort of like if you and I'm not saying atheism does entail nihilism but for for a lot of people it does I mean I got I get a lot of messages from people who say you know I'm convinced there is no God and I've been religious for most of my life and I don't really know what to do now I'm kind of like I, feeling a bit sort of hopeless and meaningless um uh, and and of course I can understand why that happens and I describe it as like sort of it's like becoming naked. It's like you've been wearing these clothes all of your life, but you realize that the clothes aren't what, what, what you are. And once you take away the clothes and you're left with what's actually just always been there all along, you're sort of ashamed and embarrassed and scared by it. And you would scramble to put on anything, not even your old clothes. You'd rather have anything rather than the nakedness. And I think something like that is maybe going on if you strip away someone's Christianity And they don't like atheism. And we've had enough time now for a generation of people to really live it out for a decade or so, see how it works. What effects does it have, you know, removing God from the culture, this kind of stuff. And some people don't like it. And if they don't, then they're going to scramble to find essentially anything that will replace it, whether that be trying to rediscover their old faith in Christianity or discovering some kind of pseudo-God in the the pinnacle of the value hierarchy that Jordan Peterson describes as God, something like that. I, I just... I think it's a result of the culture. Whatever's happening, people will want to search for and vouch for an alternative. So it will go back and forth.
4: Alistair, I would love to hear your response to Alex there, but I also would love to hear your thoughts on um, one of the observations that Justin makes in his book. And I think this is also true of a lot of the people within Coming to Faith through Dawkins is that imagination is a really important part of their story, their coming to faith. And as you said yourself, arguments are a little bit dull, but stories are much more compelling. And we've talked a lot about C.S. Lewis already. But as a C.S. Lewis scholar yourself, Alistair, presumably you would agree that imagination is a really important part of how Christians need to engage with secularism going forward.
1: Well, I think that's right. I think one of the key things about imagination is, if you like, it allows you to step into a world that maybe you don't yet inhabit, that you you know something about and you step into it and begin to explore what it might be like, uh, how this might look from this perspective, um, how things might feel if you were to be within this way of thinking. And the philosopher Charles Taylor, I think, really does a very good job of explaining how the imagination is just so important in helping us to understand who we are and the way in which we engage with ideas and society around us. So it's a very important idea. And certainly, I'm not surprised that many of our readers do pick up on this theme in the book, uh, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. But for me, I think imagination is not abandoning reason. If You like imagination is the means by which we say, if this is true, this is what it might Feel like it's about, if you like, engaging with this idea at a depth that is far more personal, if you like, than simply um, sorting out the arguments, the um, dimensions of this. So for me, imagination is really important, and that's something I think we 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 need to neglect. Very often, you know, we're we're told to think of giving reasons for our faith. And, and I don't think the word reason should be limited to arguments. I think it's very much, in effect, step into this way of thinking, experience it, feel, see what it feels like, and ask, would you like to step into this permanently? It's that kind of approach. I think.
4: Alex, we're very nearly sadly at the end of this podcast. I feel like we could talk about this stuff forever. So maybe you have to Invite you back on for a part three, but many of the individuals we see in this book coming to faith through Dawkins were were largely put off by the tone of the new atheist, particularly in in a lot of their cases. Richard Dawkins, do you think that the way we discuss these ideas is an important factor going forward, as much as in some ways what we're saying?
2: Uh, yeah, I think so, uh, especially in that people will often, even if incorrectly judge that a person's mannerisms and approach to the world and to conversations is a result of their worldview. Sometimes it might actually be the other way around. It's difficult to difficult to say, but uh, you, you you want to be a good role model, just, you know, even, even as just a psychological tactic, people are not going to, they're not going to trust you and they're not going to want to be like you if you demonstrate qualities of abrasiveness and arrogance and general dislikability. I'm not saying that's embodied by new atheists in general. I'm not even saying that's embodied by Richard Dawkins. Um, of course, we've sort of been speaking in a very critical lens about, um, about him and his work, and I've been quite critical of his work, but I, I think it's a step further to be critical of somebody per, uh, personally. Um, but I do know what you mean in that the tone of religious debates it d- does sometimes have this, this sort of arrogant quality, but I think on both sides, you know, because atheists will say the same thing it's not so much Christianity that I don't mind, but uh, that that I, that I mind, but it's the fact that it's represented by such, you know, arrogant people who think they have all of the answers and, you know, think that you're going to go to hell if you disagree with them. It's, it's, like I say, this is just the perception that people have of people who disagree with them. It happens all of the time. Every single time I've ever changed my mind on anything, I, I get to immediately see the other side, as it were. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. There are always people who will make you really actually believe that you must be stupid to think this. You must be absolutely, I can't believe some of the stupidity that I'm seeing in my comments or in my Twitter replies or something. And you just, it's no surprise to me that people become genuinely convinced uh, that other people are stupid for believing things that they don't and uh, getting frustrated hearing it all the time and thinking, God, you're just not getting it. For goodness sake, will you just listen to me? No, 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 you don't understand because you're. that's the kind of thing you're dealing with. It. It's frustrating, it's annoying. So I understand why it happens. But I mean, of course, it's, it's like a truism that you're gonna be more effective in your communications if you don't seem like you're trying to make the other person feel stupid, of course.
4: Well, thank you so much for making that clarification, Alex. We're not in any way critiquing Richard Dawkins as a person. And Alistair, I think you even said in your introduction to coming to faith through Dawkins that we're not critiquing Richard Dawkins. And in fact, lots of people wanted to say thank you to Dawkins because it was his work that predominantly, ultimately led them to faith in Jesus. Just as we come to the end of this discussion, Alistair, you raised a really important question in the previous show with Vince Vitale that um, I think you raised sort of as a rhetorical question, but I want to ask it to you with a um, the- hope Hopefully, an answer on it. How can we live with difference? Uh, I guess, how do we sort of encourage civil discussion between people who vehemently disagree?
1: Well, one thing you can do is try and draw a distinction between the person you're talking to and the ideas they represent. And I think uh, it's artificial, I know, because these things are not as separate as we might think. But it does, I think, make it easier to, to really have a serious conversation. I think it also ha- ha- it ha- helps if you're confident in your own position, not arrogant, but confident, because it means that you don't feel you're under threat. It means you you are really interested in this conversation. Uh, and, you know, it might make you change your mind, but you but you know that you're not under attack. You're not under threat. You're having a civilized conversation. But I think i go back to Isaiah Berlin, who is one of my favorite philosophers. And the reason so is that Berlin came from Eastern Europe to Oxford and, in effect, um, was deeply aware of how easily disagreement led to conflict, led to vilification, and in effect tried to argue for civilized discourse, which res- which in effect respected others but didn't necessarily see that as entailing agreement with others because it's about the issues. I think Berlin's basic idea was if you're a philosopher, well, you're you after the the truth, frankly, but very, very crude, and therefore, in effect, you have to recognize that maybe the person you're talking to might actually move you closer to that than you were before. So I think one of the things that you need to do is to say, this is this is a way in which I can learn. I either learn about things I don't understand or learn more about things I do understand. And if my colleague raises a question which I am not able to answer, then instead of trying to ridicule them, I have to go away and think, I need, I need to think more about that and give a good answer, because that's how we all grow. So for me, that really is why I, I do very much appreciate these kind of civilized yet critical conversations, because actually,
2: they're good for everyone.
4: Alex, any final thoughts about any of this stuff as we close up?
2: Well, we did talk about science and religion earlier, and um, I didn't get a chance to respond. I did want to say that, although, yes, perhaps more of a modern phenomena in its popularity, I think that, uh, for instance, the treatment of the Catholic Church by the Catholic Church of Galileo might have something to do with the perception of uh, science and religious conflict. Again, that's got nothing to do with the idea of religion in general conflicting with science in general, but the idea of religion as a social institution being some kind of stopping block in the way of scientific progress, I think, dates at least as far back as that, even if people weren't really talking about it quite in those terms back then that's a historical example that people often refer to and they have the wrong idea about it. Some people think that Galileo was like tortured by the church or something. It's not true. he was put under house arrest, but the trial of Galileo and, uh, I did, I didn't actually pull it up because in the break, I realized that I might want to quote it in the sentencing, sentencing, uh, sentencing of Galileo by the church. They say that this is a view which in accordance with, uh, Copernicus's position contains various propositions against the authority and true meaning of Holy Scripture. He says that the sun is the center of the world and motionless is a proposition which is philosophically absurd and false and formally heretical, implying that the, I mean, it's often, we're often told that the real reason that the Catholic Church were condemning Galileo was because he didn't have evidence for his position. If he'd have presented evidence, as Cardinal Bellarmine is said to have said, there would have been no problem. But here we're being told it's actually philosophically absurd and false And that's why he's being condemned. I think that might have something to do with the perception that religion and science haven't had the greatest historical relationship. I just wanted to flag that. Apart from that, nothing else I can really think of saying.
4: Great. Alistair, have you got anything to say on that?
2: Well, the church got many things. That's what
1: repentance is all about. He's wrong in the past and happily have apologized for that. The important thing is when you get something wrong, you say so and move on.
4: Great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to both of you, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much to my fantastic guests, Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. We do hope you enjoyed this discussion. As always, let us know what you think. And as Vince said last time, Richard Dawkins, if you're listening, we would love to hear your thoughts on coming to faith through Dawkins. And on that note, I will make sure that I include details of how to get hold of coming to faith through Dawkins. So do go and buy a copy. Thank you for listening to Unbelievable with me, Ruth Jackson, and see you
3: next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion, which was the second of two shows about the book Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Let us know your thoughts by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave comments on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page or tweet us at unbelievableFE. And now for what's coming up next week. I really don't think that AI as it is now is on a trajectory to becoming conscious but it will certainly seem as though machines have conscious minds and that's a danger. If consciousness is a property of the brain then it's subject to causal determinism physical determinism. This idea of libertarian free will I think is entirely wrong and and I also think it's unnecessary. These systems will become more and more like us. People will treat them and want them to be treated as though they're human. The challenge now is it seems to be going faster and faster. We are terrible at projecting out long-term consequences. Robot rights. I can see it coming. How much, like robots, are human minds? Do we have free will? And how should humanity flourish in an AI world? Christian robotics expert Professor Nigel Crook and atheist cognitive and computational neuroscientist Professor Anil Seth debate this question in the concluding part of the Big Conversation two-part special The Robot Race. This episode releases on the twenty-second of September, but you can watch it a whole week early from the fifteenth of September instead by registering at thebigconversation.show, which will also give you access to hours of bonus video and ebook content from across all five seasons of the Big Conversation, as well as the chance to win a free copy of Professor Nigel Crook's book, Rise of the Moral Machine. That's the Big conversation show there you have it next week we will wrap up our other two parter the big conversation about the robot race and the rapid advances in AI can't wait that long sign up to watch it now at the big conversation show thank you for listening we'll see you next time on the show that gets Christians and non-Christians talking unbelievable